0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.
2: This episode is presented by Forever Cheese. Learn more at forevercheese.com.
1: Today, I'm speaking with Anthony Domenici, co founder of Basecamp Consulting Group, the fractional CFO and bookkeeping team for CPG companies looking to scale sustainably. Anthony is a finance and accounting expert with a career spanning nearly 20 years and has worked with public and private companies ranging in revenue from a million to $5 billion. Basecamp offers a full service suite of financial services with a team comprised of entrepreneurs operators and advocates. Welcome Anthony.
3: Yeah, thank you for having me. Super excited to join you today.
1: Yeah, so I, you know, I I just finished episode 202 and I was sort of looking back and, you know, reminiscing a bit and thinking a little bit how my episodes probably similar to sort of like the way that people have thinking about CPG in the last couple of years have shifted somewhat from a majority of discussions about growth and marketing and sales to, I feel like my latest episodes have been much heavier on financial health operations, you know, the, the not as fun, shiny stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, and I guess I'm wondering, you know, you've been in this, you've been here for 20 years. Are you a very much the same noticing that shift and B, um, does it feel like you're having more conversations about like, help me get profitable now more than ever, or does this feel like just cyclical to you because you've seen this before?
3: Um, well, I would say short answer is yes, but you know this it can be both. It is sort of cyclical, and um, you know I, I guess more financial urgency, maybe. Um, you know I think that there is a period of time in maybe every economic expansion where capital is sort of free flowing, and you know you want to catch the upswing, and mm-hmm. there's sort of high confidence in your ability to raise money. Um, debt and equity are easier to come by. There's more competition for investments, which push valuations higher. Mm -hmm. And I think over the last, you know, especially year, probably 18 months, those started to slow down. Mm -hmm. So I think the access to capital has really driven kind of the, the sense of urgency I'm talking about. And it may not even be, let's get profitable for everyone, Mm -hmm. but it's more about how do I make my cash last longer? I think if you're just less confident that you have access to capital or equity or debt or whatever it is, you're more thoughtful about how you're spending. So you might be reducing expenses when in a direction of getting profitable. But it's really more about cash, I think, um, when it comes down to it. And of course, if you are profitable, you have surplus cash.
1: Right. No, that makes sense. And it's funny because I had Greg Wank on a couple weeks ago from Anshin and he was saying that this all sort of started before COVID, but then COVID happened and sort of created all of these very strange patterns. One of them being just like a massive, you know, just greater desire for consumer goods and cooking at home and products that, all of that. And now we're sort of seeing a little bit, A, what would have happened had COVID not happened, but also the tailwinds of COVID, which have now also impacted supply chain and retailers. You know, it's kind of this double whammy a little bit. Is that how you would sort of paint the picture as well?
3: Yeah, I think it's COVID created an interesting dynamic, just because of this sort of like bullwhip in some cases, where you know your business got massively disrupted, and then it was on fire, and then now like some of the distribution channels are stuffed, so you have working capital issues. Not you might have you know too much inventory in distributors and uh, surplus inventory where you wanted to make sure you didn't run out, and you bought too much, and there's kind of a big um, impact of that. Where I think. You know, in addition, just debt didn't really matter for a little while; that was so cheap, um, and now it's starting to matter. So, I don't know. I think there's a combination of dynamics there that certainly have affected CPG, um, and there's sort of this pendulum swing too of, you know, hyper-intensive direct to consumer activity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the change with you know iOS and all these other things, and just the return on those ad spends reducing. It might be swinging back more towards the retail side. Right. And, you know, the cash flow dynamics of that are also a lot different. So I think there's a number of things happening that I think make, making cash flow in your business more difficult. Um, yeah. And it's sort of like I've heard it talked about like the non-recession recession where <laughs> if you're holding assets, you know, increasing the cost of debt um, and interest rates make those assets more expensive. Um, where sales may not necessarily have dropped for, you know, a lot of brands, but just kind of running your business day to day, the, Got you know, making expensive. sure your cash flow cycle is working properly for you and, and mm-hmm. just kind of managing your business has become a lot more difficult, I think.
1: Yeah. I know we didn't necessarily draft this or talk about it when we were talking about the episode, but is that essentially what happened with Instant Pot? You know, like the, have they went, bankrupt I don't it's like <laughs> people who are people are really confusing so do you know about this like
3: I actually I'm not familiar with that story yet
1: so instant pot is like you know it's like the the slow cooker that became synonymous with slow cooking you know it's, it's yeah. there is a brand it's yeah it's like a pressure cooker yeah and they own I think they own Pyrex they own a couple of brands anyway they just filed for chapter 11 Um hmm. They, they have gazillions in sales. I mean, I guess part of, you know, we don't need to dig into it since it's the first year hearing of it. But I think what's always kind of shocking for a founder is that you can be doing really well and you can have excellent sales and you can still end up losing your business. A hundred percent. Yeah, And that really comes from managing the cash, essentially.
3: Yeah, I I think it kind of goes back. I I think there's going to be sort of like a common thread here that we Mm -hmm. end up talking about, which is cash flow. And um, it it really has been a staple of the Basecamp business. I mean, kind of a lot of what we built this on beginning was having to do with cash, helping businesses cash flow during the pandemic, the first Mm -hmm. year of the pandemic. Um, But yeah, I mean, if you're if you're looking at growth as must grow at all costs and you're not profitable, you might have tens of millions of dollars in revenue and be net, negative net income, five, tens, you know, millions of dollars one day, that's going to matter. And if you can't pivot quick enough um, and you're not watching your balance sheet, which, you know, might be a little too deep for this call being, you know, sort of like a, a finance nerd, but mm-hmm. um you know, there's, if your liabilities are far exceeding your ability to generate cash quick enough, that's kind of usually what ends up happening with bankruptcy is just not able to meet your commitments. And, you know, there's covenants and all kinds of things that you can get into of of who can take control of your company, but that's the quickest way to kind of lose your company. Either your, you know, you might be private equity backed or um, your capital partners will end up taking over the business and kicking you out or the bank takes over. I mean, there's a, there's a bunch of different scenarios, right. but yeah, just sort of getting overextended. And I think as you're, if you're growing quickly, while it can be very exciting, that's one of the risks is just sort of getting overextended at the wrong time. And it it, it also can come down to a little bit of luck or bad luck. I mean,
1: right. No, I mean, it's, it's funny because, you know, I mean, I've I ran a brick and mortar for eight years and it was very, you know, I mean, people have listened to the podcast have heard me say this. I remember when we decided to switch from paper towels to an electric, like Dyson hand blower. And Mm -hmm. we waited until after we had, you know, two weddings to go get the, (laughs) the hand blower. Like every Mm -hmm. decision we made was based on, literally what we had in the bank. And then when I got into CPG, it seemed like all the signals around me were telling me that that, that stuff didn't matter as much, which is, you know, partially my fault for just not really understanding. But I think, I think very few founders actually really understand you know, we're told a certain, you know, we're told a few things. One is, you know, product margins somewhere above 60%, gross margin somewhere above 40%. You know, GNA, you shouldn't hire too many people at too high salaries until whatever. But like, we don't really totally understand cash flow and balance sheet and like, liabilities and those covenants. We, we're not, I don't think, expected to entirely, but a lot of like early stage companies, we, we can't afford the time and the resources of, you know, the real finance folks. Um, and the finance folks that a lot of people in the early stages do interact with On one hand are, you know, bookkeepers who are just making sure that you are paying the bills and getting paid. And on the other hand, you know, sometimes VCs who their models have nothing to do with actual day-to-day running of a business. They're just these like, you can, you're going to double and then you're going to double and then you're going to double, you (laughs) know, like we're kind of missing, I guess that's where, you know, folks like you come in. Um. But I mean, do you see it a lot? Yeah. Do you see people just being like, what, you know, what are these things and why are they relevant? And what do I, what do I need to learn and know like the back of my hand to be able to run this business thoughtfully?
3: Yeah. So I think there's a couple of things that uh, I wanted to touch on there that you mentioned. One is, um, you know, starting with bookkeepers, um, we always recommend starting with bookkeeping early. Um, You have to have clean books to be able to make good decisions about your business and having a CPG kind of focused bookkeeper who understands how things are supposed to work um, Mm -hmm. is really important. And um, I think the other thing that we often see, let's just, let's just assume your books are right, but having somebody that is willing to kind of partner with you with your business and add a little bit more value to the numbers, which is kind of our manifesto. That's really what we're trying to do here is, um, be true business partners, add value to, you know, somebody that says, Oh, here's your books and good luck with that. But Mm -hmm. what we're trying to do is give you a little more insight. We have a team of entrepreneurs and sort of business owners, and we've been on the other side of the table with like, you know, the founders mentality, we call it the founders mindset. Mm -hmm. So having been on that side of the table and, you know, growing our own business to just, you know, growing base camp, um, I think we try to bring that, added value. Um, because you're right. I don't think you're expected to know all of that, all of those things. And one of the things we do see as well as if we take over books, um, you know, I think initially a lot of founders may have, you know, someone they know doing their bookkeeping or sort of, mm-hmm. you know, like their cousin or their uncle or something. And I don't think people pay attention to the balance sheet a lot and that can sort of get you in trouble. Right.
1: We're looking at the PL much more than the balance sheet.
3: Yeah. And that's not exactly wrong, but there's, um, you know, there's a component of that where things can be hidden, right? So, like mm-hmm. if you're creating entries that are incorrect and it's sort of just covered up by shoving them in an account on the balance sheet. So, if you're, I guess that's a watch out. So, if you have an account on your balance sheet that's just growing for no reason and you don't know what it is, you probably should call somebody and have them look at it. That's a watch out right. for brands.
1: Okay, <laughs> um, good one.
3: So um, the other thing that I think that you mentioned is just affording, you know, finance people. So there are, you know, that's another value prop that we're basically trying to bring is just, you know, fractional help that is affordable and can give you the experience of somebody that, you know, if you hired full time would be, you know, you know, a a world class CFO could be three, four, five hundred thousand dollars a year, you know, depending on the size of your company. Um, So having access to people that have those expertise and can add a little value and kind of keep you, keep you within maybe some guidelines or some guide rails, um, I think is a lot of, um, a lot of value.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I, why don't we, I think what we, I, what I'd like to do if you don't mind is like, just take a theoretical snack company. Let's just okay. take a cookie company. They just launched in global whole foods. And as a consequence of that, they now have opened all of the UNFI DCs and they have, you know, a, whether it's outsourced or whatever, they're getting, they're getting retailers, they're opening doors, they're, you know, banging through the UNFI sort of ecosystem. And let's say they're going to be doing about 3 million for the year. That founder is. Um, is now trying to create a dashboard for herself, you know, with whoever is doing the numbers, what would you say most important things she should be looking at on that dashboard? And is it weekly? Is it monthly? I would imagine it's not quarterly. Um, What are the key indicators that that founder needs to know as they sort of enter the big, bad world of, you know, distribution and multiple retailers and, 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 and?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, the number one thing that comes to mind is, you know, velocities. Um, Understanding the velocities in, in the doors that you're in will help inform a lot of the decisions that come after that after unlocking that, I mean, that's a very exciting time, but at the same time, things are getting much more complicated. So having inventory at multiple DCs, you know, multiple POs coming from multiple places, uh, Mm -hmm. and obviously the buildbacks, like the chargebacks, um, that's a whole animal in itself. Um, So, I mean, as far as, you know, weekly, I... And monthly. I mean, I, I think you really have to have somebody that understands what you agree to with your distributor and what they're charging you for. Because um, right, okay. I think some of those things are going to be mistakes that you've made
1: mm-hmm.
3: um, where you need to learn from that and prevent that. And some of them are going to be mistakes that they've made and you need to hold them accountable to fix it and not charge you too much. So I think understanding the you know the, the amount of expense related to opening a new door is also really important.
1: So, in terms of brass tacks, though, I got a review on Apple Podcasts that I talk too much and interrupt my guests, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm like very cognizant now that I just interrupted you. But I want to just I, the reason why I'm interrupting is for a good cause because so we're gonna we're gonna talk about velocities in a second, but how we I think we get it. I think we understand that we need to know what UNFI or KEHI or any of them yeah. is charging us. We need to have our eye on it, but we don't entirely know what that means or how. So is there a way for us to ask whoever is doing our numbers to say, I need to see this every week or every month or whatever it is, every billing cycle or however"? from UNFI and these are the people that need to have access to this so that we can keep ourselves and them accountable. Like what, what will show us what that cost is? You know what I mean?
3: Yeah. So having those, I think a little bit of detail in the the billbacks, like the categories that they're coming in, whether they're, um, you know, related to revenue and, you know, if it's like coupon driven or, or those types of things, scans, and whether they're more kind of uh, fee-based, the category that they're in as a percentage of revenue is usually helpful to kind of just gauge. uh, Also, just accruing them in the right period. So you want to be matching up your expenses with the revenue related to that uh, will be helpful um, just to kind of gauge whether it's increasing or decreasing. Um, I think you also just want to make sure, you know, of your best-selling SKUs so that you have enough inventory to meet the demand. So, sort of understanding the trend of mm-hmm. you know the demand on those products. And I think the thing that I often see in a scaling company is trying to make sure everything is in stock all the time will cost you a lot mm-hmm. of cash. Right. So I think again it comes back to cash flow. But if you're ramping sales, you're going to have a big draw on cash to have inventory to meet those sales. So I think trying yeah. to understand how how things are being ordered and um, your, you know, your product mix and what's the most important, um, will help you kind of manage your cash over that time. Mm -hmm. Um, but you, you know, watching your AR, uh, and relative to your sales on a monthly basis. So, you know, I think there's, there's this thought that, you know if you're on net 30, you're going to get paid on time. That's usually not the case. There's right. going to be you're going to have to follow up, you're going to have to make sure you're getting paid. The check probably go, may go to the wrong mailbox, so it's something you have to watch. Um, yep. because if you have a big order and you miss that check, I mean, it can be it could mean you know, it could be a disaster for some companies at the wrong time. Yep. Um, and then a lot of the KPIs that we always just talk about are. You know, year over year, month over month, month uh, measuring against your budget, um, your inventory turns. so as you're scaling, it, uh, you know, it all comes back to working capital and cash flow for me, I guess. <laughs> right. So a lot of those metrics.
1: And so let's just say, going back to this cookie company, they have four SKUs, and they're looking at that Whole Foods portal, and, you know, they see really, really strong velocities, in two of them and not as strong in the other two um and they're you know they i guess you know what what does that tell them then you know like what we all have you know we all have our winner skews it kind of, you know, winner begets winner in the sense that the minute that you start selling to other places, they say, what are your top SKUs? And then essentially you have, you know, a couple of them that are in every account and then a few of them that are spread sort of over a bunch of accounts, which isn't great if, you know, you have, you know, MOQs or volume helps you, you know, in any way. So when you're advising people, you know, all right, look at the velocities. What are, you, what are you asking them to do once they look at the velocities? Like, what are the, what's the takeaway? Okay, we know our velocities, we see them, we see that they're growing, we see that they're, you know, some do better in the Midwest than others, but then what?
3: Yeah, I think, I mean, you have, you really have to look at, your business and what's happening and decide if you're willing to make the tough decisions to cut something or maybe innovate in a way that's closer to the success that you're having. I think it's, there's no one answer for any company. I yeah. think in a lot of these things, and I a lot of times I lead with, well, it depends. Um, right. Cause you know, if you, and it really depends on how many SKUs you have overall as well too. So, but you know, if you think about capital efficiency and where you're spending your cash, I think you would want to lean into the areas the that you're that are having success and, mm-hmm. you know, you may want to cut the the bottom skew or maybe it's only one or maybe it's two. I don't, you know, it depends on right. a lot. But um, if you're thinking about scaling a business sustainably, you would want to lean into the products that are obviously selling better because you're able to turn your inventory quicker make your capital work for you quicker. You can also look into more kind of financing instruments, which if you have slow moving inventory and you're using sort of like these short-term financing solutions, that becomes very expensive. But if you have things that are moving quicker, then that's where those tools can become a little bit better for you to sort of, you know, magnify your cash. It'll make the return on your, you know, I would call it sort of like the equity dollars uh, higher, but, you know, you can sort of bifurcate your portfolio of SKUs in a way where you can apply those methods to the quicker moving ones, which is a little bit safer. Um, yep. You know, I think if you're, if you're building towards products that are pulling naturally and things are going well, obviously everything is smoother. If you're trying to sort of push the boulder uphill and you're spending a lot on ads and you know all of those other things uh, for products that aren't working well, then all of your capital efficiency metrics really go down
1: quite a bit. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. All right. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and talk about other finance fun things. We'll be
2: right back. Forever Cheese, a leading importer of cheese and specialty food has sourced exceptional products from Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Croatia for 25 years. Offering a wide selection of artisan cheese, charcuterie, nuts, crackers, preserves, and more, their products are sold in stores nationwide. Forever Cheese seeks out the best of the Mediterranean and focuses on sharing stories from their family of producers. Each product has a unique story, and their goal is to celebrate each one. From drunken goat to genuine fulvi pecorino romano, mostarda to mitica marcona almonds, and duya to jamon iberico, Forever Cheese is proud to offer products they love from people they believe in. Their passion, quality, and range are unmatched. Learn more at forevercheese.com and look for their products in a grocery store, restaurant, or specialty food shop near you. I'm back with
1: Anthony Domenici from Basecamp. Um, Okay, so same founder, year later, they're getting a green light from Target, and now they need to raise money. So they had a really nice $3 million a year. You know, most of the SKUs are working. A couple of them aren't as well. Target is taking three of them. Um, you know, they are they know they're going to need some money. And uh, now they have to um, kind of step up their financial leadership game a little bit. Um, what, what do they do then? next step well
3: I think I'm gonna go back to it depends um Mm -hmm. so it depends on what they've already done so if you've raised like a friends and family round or if you're if you have a certain amount of debt um if you've gotten a three million in sales I have to imagine there's some sort of capital uh happening here so you would have to sort of take a look at your balance sheet and see what you've done already and then Next step would be um, to figure out the what. So if we say, you know, this is these are the velocities I know, and I expect to continue. Um, this is what my projections look like. You know, putting together a forecast and a cash flow forecast to understand where the shortfall is. So then, if you understand what, then we would go to figure out how to solve for that. Mm-hmm. So, and then you know that could mean equity or it could mean debt or it could be both mean both um Mm -hmm. i think it would just depend on kind of where you're at what you've done what your appetite is um for you know risk and also just the type of like it it also depends on like what's your goal so if i feel like there's this there's this whole kind of um unicorn Mm -hmm. like social equity thing about like Mm -hmm. you know like I became a unicorn brand and I exited and that's like the dream of everybody that, you know, starting right. a brand where like that kind of can get you in trouble as well. So mm-hmm. it really is like, what are you trying to achieve as a person and what are your personal goals? And then that can really inform the sources of capital that you're going to go out and get. Well, um, I'd
1: like to ask you about that a little bit because so last week I had Janica Lane on who's an M&A banker and she's done, you know, she her whole career has been basically doing m um, and with CPG companies. And she told me that they have an expression, build your company like you're never going to sell it because you might not be able to. It was something like that. It was much more clever yeah. than that. Um, <laughs> but the idea is that that idea of we're going to triple every year and we're going to get to 100 million and then we're going to sell for, you know, 700 million um, is just so, so few and far between. And um, you can't really build your company planning for that because, you know, it's so unlikely to happen and it can really bite you. So uh, the, the problem, though, then becomes very few of us in in the food CPG space are going to be able on the flip side to build companies that set off enough cash at the end of every year to, you know, sort of take care of us for ever. Right. It's not that kind of a business. It just the, the ecosystem of the business is that these big strategic players own it they own distribution yeah. they own the shelves they own <laughs> the pricing they own everything yes. and we're not even playing the same game so what are the alternatives i mean instead of us founders setting ourselves up for you know trying to scale to exit what should we or could we be setting ourselves up for that is a pleasant lifestyle and going to make us feel fulfilled.
3: Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, you're not wrong with all of those points. Um, but I think what really ends up striking with people is just the authenticity of like, you know, why are you doing this in the first place? Um, mm-hmm. because I think there is a whole like founder's mindset and, I don't know, mental block that you really have to get over to even do this in the first place because you're probably going to work harder than you've ever worked in your life. And you're probably going to make, you know, a yep. half or less than that than you made last year or whatever if you, yep. if you started your own business, maybe even less than that, maybe nothing the first mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole sort of, like, um, grit and, you know, I don't know, survival mentality that you have to have to even do this. So um, I do believe that, you know, it, there, there's plenty of groups out there and companies that have started with the intention of exiting that have done well and done that. But, you know, a lot of times what really has people respond to a product is the authenticity of the founder, the story. Um, and, uh, you know, something that you've seen in your life that you're solving for that you really wanted and you couldn't find. And, you know, those types of things, I think, strike with people. And when you're you're trying to build something that means something to you, you know, those two things will probably happen at some point, which is you're going to build a company that can sustain you and your family. And, you know, you might blink one day and you sell it and it'll be, you know, an amazing achievement at that time. But I think also just getting to a place where you're able to work in a business that you create and love and, you know, grind away at is... I think part of the dream as well. I think there's this whole, mm. um, like you kind of have to love the grind um, because yeah. it, even if you are doing well, it's still going to be a grind and it, it doesn't really get simpler or easier. Um, right. You might have more cash at one at some point in time and you might take on investors and you might have debt and it just, it's just going to get more and more complicated. So, um, you know, I don't know if there's really like a, a one answer.
1: Love the grind most of the time. Is the thing. You know, I whenever I onboard anybody to my company, you know, I heard uh, you know, it's it's kind of like the 80-20 rule about anything. You know, I'm like, I don't expect you to love your job a hundred percent of the time. I don't think there's any expectation of that. There's no relationship that's great a hundred percent of the time, there's no place that's great 100% of the time so I can't imagine this job will be but if you start dipping below 80 then I need you to let me know you know and I think it's similar for founders like if you you find yourself really unhappy running your company more than you know 20% of the time there's a problem, you know, and I, I think that's a fair yeah. estimate, you know, one out of every five days, I feel like crap for, <laughs> you know, one out of every yeah. five hours, I feel like crap. Um, I think that like 80, 20 feels about right, you know, because I think setting, setting, you know, people think they love the grind, but then they get tired and then they get a no from a retailer or then an investor tells them that they haven't really built anything all that special or whatever it is. Um, it's really painful, you know? Yeah.
3: Yeah. I think that's, I mean, that's clearly the hard part is, um, you know, it's really easy for people to say something negative about something you've, you know, spent hours and hours and months and years building, Um, you know, kind of flippantly, and it's like can be really crushing. Um, but you know, I think one of the things that I found that was helpful is having a good partner to run your business with, like a co founder. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you know, I think it helps you kind of get through those tough times. Um, I don't, you know, disagree that there's every founder has you know, rough patches in their business, and um, you know, hard lessons learned. And, you know, for me, I think one of the important things was being able to just sort of pivot and learn from those things, you know, and keep moving forward. Um, and I know it's easy to say because there's certain degrees of issues that you run into and some of them might be more catastrophic than others, but, um, yeah, I think you definitely have to love the product and the story. I, 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 am cool with going with the 80, 20, 80% of the time. (laughs) Um, okay. Because you do, you you do. I mean, it's never going to go perfectly all the time and you have to be able to move past those tough times and continue to love what you're doing.
1: Yeah. Going back to sort of like that fictional founder, right? So Mm -hmm. every month she should know her velocities in certain accounts, the ones that she can get them from. She should know how much cash she has. She should know- you know, the last month sort of what happened with the margins, what happened? Was there any crazy trade spread from UNFI that she right. got hit? She should know um, what, what else? I mean, obviously top oh. line sales.
3: I think one of the things that you touched on there is important to know. We sort of like skimmed over it quickly, but being able to get that information in timely fashion I mean, there's certain companies out there that may not need it, you know, immediately, And but there's plenty of companies that I think need to have their uh, financials and information, you know, readily available within, you know, call it 10 business days of the prior month. Right. Um, you know, if your business is moving quickly, being able to rely on that information to make decisions is really important. And, you know, as you scale, the further you get, Well, the the larger you grow, the more people you add, the further you get disconnected from every detail of your business. So having sort of that data at your fingertips, I think, is um, really important. But, um, you know, I think, you know, the major categories are going to be kind of what we touched on, you know, sales, margins, contribution margins, your inventory, days on hand of inventory, your receivables, how much cash, what's your burn like? So especially in the current um, market that we're in, Managing your cash burn month to month is really important. And what's your runway left? So if you're not yeah. profitable, how can you manage your burn? And I think with a CPG company, it's going to be a little bit chunkier. With like a service company, it's a little bit more predictable. You you sort of have expenses that are not related to inventory. Um, right. Where if you have inventory, you have a massive buy-in or minimums. And then you might not have to buy inventory for a few months. So you should be generating cash, you know, the, the following months. Um, yeah at least more than when you're buying inventory. So um, I think that's something that's really come up in the last, you know, six months, the sort of the changing dynamic of, you know, the the capital market and sort of the, I think, you know, one of the initial questions that you asked me around, you know, get profitable really around sort of like surviving and making my cash last. So I think that might be the most important right now is, if you're not profitable, understanding your burn and what the runway is and how to manage yeah. that as best you can.
1: So speaking of burn, I remember when I was opening the brick and mortar cooking school and the I was in a master's program at the time and I was taking a class and the you know professor basically said like the rule, the hard, fast rule in like brick and mortar hospitality is that your rent should not be more than ten percent of your sales. So, okay. if your rent is twenty two thousand dollars a month, um, you should make at least two hundred and twenty thousand dollars in sales a month, basically. Um, and it was a it was interesting because I think everyone kind of hears and is like, "Wow, ten percent! Like, what could possibly make up for you know the rest?" You know, <laughs> but <laughs> inevitably. <laughs> so much makes up for the rest and there's so many things and if you want to take home anything at the end of the month it it is a very good physical law to sort of abide by
2: right
1: are there any that can that are sort of similar in cpg like your gna should not be more than x% percent of your total revenue or your you know anything on like the the sort of the, the, when people are putting together what they think their burn is going to be, or when they look at their burn and they're like, "Wow, gosh, why where how am I spending that much? you know yeah. that They're just some simple sort of like this shouldn't be more than 10%. This shouldn't be more than 20% like that you can just kind of generally abide by.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think again, it depends on like the stage that you're in and where you're headed. I think early on your marketing spend is gonna be huge. It's gonna be like twenty or thirty percent of your, you know, PL of your revenue. Um, which you wanna if you think about like kind of the numbers you touched on at the beginning of like your product margin 60, gross margins forty to fifty percent, if you wanna make ten percent you know, net income or, you know, EBITDA, then you basically have that 30 to 40% to play with. So it, it could sort of depends on what else you have going on. If you have, you know, a an office or if you're doing the manufacturing yourself and you have equipment, you have all these, uh, you know, utilities are high. It, it kind of just depends on what stage and what, what your operating model is. Um, you know, where if you're doing, you know, in, which a lot of people most people are probably um mm-hmm. you might have less of that sort of like fixed cost infrastructure and you have a, a lot of variable costs so you know i think um you know gna you know in a loose term when you talk about you know excluding marketing um i think of gna's
1: team and, and rent yeah
3: I, I, uh, I, I guess it also depends on like your labor, like what kind of labor you're, you're leveraging. But, um, you know, I guess if I would say like sort of like a, a more established business, you know, if you want your marketing probably to be closer to 10 or less if you can, it just depends yeah. on what stage you're in. Um, and then, you know, GNA probably another 10 to 15, um, and then you're just going to have a bunch of miscellaneous things that add up, sort of like the, the death of a thousand cuts um, yeah. that you don't even think about. But, uh, you know, I, I honestly, most of the time in my career, I try not to operate with those rules because I just, every company has been so different. I, that's one of the benefits that I've found in growing Basecamp is I've seen so many different business models and stages of business and, you know, different revenue makeup and, uh industries, um, within packaged goods or inventory-based businesses. Um, I I just it's hard to apply one general rule, but I think if you just think about like you have gross profit or contribution margins, and there's a goal of profitability you're trying to get to and to pay yourself, you sort of have this other chunk that you need to look at your business and understand what makes makes that up. And then probably set parameters within that, call it 30 to 40% that you have left and figure out what Makes sense for you right now. It could be that you need to spend a majority of that on marketing right now. Um, right. You know, if you have a new product launch or whatever is going on and then, but you need to know what the other levers are to pull. And I think that's really what it comes down to is understanding the, the drivers and the levers in your business. Um, so a lot of times when you go through like a budgeting or a modeling or an operating plan, I think that's the most valuable part about that is it forces you to stop look at your business, understand the drivers, make strategic, you know, educated guesses about what's going to happen. But then when reality happens, you understand what are the levers that you can pull. So right. I think that's really what it comes down to is, you know, what's fixed, what's variable, what can you do when reality happens?
1: Yeah, no, and I think, I I mean, that's this is actually really a helpful way to look at it because, you know, you hear fixed and you hear variable. And, you know, if you're like me, you're like, "Ah," you know, (laughs) I think, I think part of the question is always, you know, I've had guests on and, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll say it over and over, you know, look at each sales channel, like look at each retailer that you're in and make sure you're actually making money there. It's, it's really hard conceptually to see that you are having a lot of sales in a retailer or that you're up fifty percent in a retailer, or that your velocity is quite strong in a retailer, but that you're not making money in that retailer it's 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 really disconcerting to see that you know it's it's strange it's tough. Or, yeah, and you know I find myself being like, Wait, why, like what you know like it look it <laughs> because by the yeah. time you add back. The, you know, they, they bill you back for expired or, you know, it's the the freight to get to them is so much more than if you did it another way that the margins already kind of tweaked, like, and that's where I think getting that granularity, similar with the SKUs, right? Like going back to what you said before the break, you know, we have two SKUs that are sort of tied for last place. And there are people who are obsessed with both of them. They do well in different retailers. Um, One of them happens to be our most expensive, you know, skew to make, which is Mm. obviously irritating to me. Um, (laughs) But, you know, every time I'm sort of like, maybe we should just like send her to pasture, you know, then we worry about, you know, are we going to get that spot back? in the retailers that do sell it. And are, you know, are we going to have less of a brand presence if we go from four to three on some retail shelves? And, you know, so obviously a swap is better, but swaps are hard and not every retailer can do them. And, you know, these, you know, I guess practically, you know, if, if we had someone saying like, listen, This is how much money this SKU is making you, but this is how much money you're losing. So actually, this SKU is negative $200,000 a year or whatever it is. I think it would make the decision much easier. But I don't know how many of us are actually doing that.
3: Well, I think the first hurdle I run into when we start having those conversations is pulling the data together to even answer that question. Right that kind of goes back to sort of having, you know, really good process and bookkeeping around all this data because it's not an easy question to answer if you don't have it set up properly. And I've helped companies get to those questions. And um, I think half the time they're surprised at the answer. I think, you know, they might think their, you know, direct consumer channel is the most profitable and it it could be up on the front end because of your price and your, your product margin. But by the time you add a 3PL... And all the other, you know, nickel and diming pick pack, it depends on if you're selling the combo packs and all these other things that can be like Mm -hmm. adding up the blended margin on that could even be lower than your wholesale margin. And Mm -hmm. people don't even really realize it until you put the number right in front of their face, but it might take us, you know, 30 or 60 days to even get that together because we have to dig through a ton of data. So it's, and those are the kinds of things I think that are difficult to do early on, but are really beneficial because when things start to go well and you start scaling and like your story here that we came up with, when things start to get complicated, it's really hard to go back and build that stuff Right. because you just have so much more data and history to dig through and figure out what happened and you don't really have time to even look at it. So as you're building, slowly building those building blocks will help you make those decisions in real time when things start to go, move quicker. Yep. Uh, And I see that over and over again.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I think that, you know, one of the questions was, you know, is always around, I think also, you know, a lot of us get models put in front of us by finance folks, and Mm -hmm. we look at two things, you know, or three, and the rest of it is just Excel and sort of, you know, disconcerting. (laughs) Um. But, you know, making the model actually work for you, making it something that you don't feel like you missed a boat, but you feel like you can actually impact and make change that you need to. I mean, we all know that, you know, the most, I guess, the variable, the big variable costs are the people, right? Mm -hmm. Like at the end of the day, a lot of us that have, invested in building brands have humans that are doing jobs that I guess arguably aren't a hundred percent imperative to making the product and getting the product on shelf. They are important in terms of building awareness and making sure that, you know, people are seeing it and that it's continuing to grow. Um, but you know, I think even going back further, if people knew that they should, if people knew how to look at each retailer and if people knew how to look at the variable costs of each channel and each distributor and each product, you know, there, I think there'd be a lot less sort of higher and then fire and then higher again and then fire. You know, I think, I feel like people, if yeah. you know, we were armed with that.
3: Well, I think one of the things that I see is, um, building like models and projections in a way that are really hard to measure against. So it's sort of has to go back to your combining matching your modeling to sort of the way the accounting works. So like there's occasionally I see a model that has like excruciating detail in like all the wrong places. Like, Mm. you know, there's there's places that are really the most impactful for your business. And that's going to be sort of this like net contribution This is the mm-hmm. first place where, you know, a lot of people understand their product costs cause they're probably the one that's, you know, built it and sourced all the materials and they're very familiar with that. But when you start getting into, yeah, to the selling channels with all the other fulfillment costs, being able to one, you know, model that out in a way that's easy to understand, but then also track those expenses in the same way. Um, and then sort of building the rest of your business, like there's this phrase that um, came up this week or last week that were like pennies or prisoners. Like you don't necessarily have to model everything out to the penny and understand all of your operating expenses to the penny. But it's more about key drivers in your business and managing sort of like the buckets. And I think that's right. the way we try to model the rest of the operating expenses, your, your big buckets are going to be marketing, your sales, you know, sort of selling expenses, marketing, labor, and then all the other sort of administrative GNA and a expenses. Right. Um, so, you know, we build out a labor model. Um, we build out, you know, a marketing plan. We build sales revenue by channel. And then in that revenue channel, there's additional expenses that match up with those channels. So wholesale may have commissions. You know, you might be shipping, um, you know, containers or whatever. Who's covering those expenses? Um, and then, you know, direct consumer layering all those expenses, your advertising costs, ads, like all those things kind of come into play. But you right. also have to be able to book those and track it. And I think having a budget. So if you're going through this exercise of, I'm really thinking about my business. I really understand it. I understand the drivers. And then you need to measure against it because I think. If you think you know it and then reality starts coming through and it's different, you need to be able to measure those results and make new decisions based on a, that information. And I think it's really like an iterative process. You know, almost like a in your when you're really early in your business, creating a one-year operating plan, I think it's a good exercise. But in reality, you probably have to look at it every quarter and, and kind of doesn't seem to make sense anymore. A year is like... An eternity in a yeah. you know a small startup scaling business. so um, you kind of have to create this engine of sort of measure, iterate, you know pivot, and then go, and you have to just yeah. sort of keep doing that over and over again uh, as you as you grow.
1: Yeah, and I mean right now you know it's it's mid June as we're recording this, and you know at least in my category. A bunch of the retailers that we thought were resetting by now have not. Some of them, you know, we have some outlying yeses that have not reset. And we have some outlying meetings that we were supposed to have in Q1 that we have not had. Um, and so, you know, I know I'm not alone. I mean, I know that there's yeah. a lot, especially in Fresh and in some case in Frozen. Um, And I also know that, you know, retailers that maybe would touch the set, you know, a major kind of reset once a year and maybe, you know, a mid-year sort of little gentle touch, they're not even doing that anymore um, because of the labor that it costs the retailers to do that. So it's June, it's time for all of us to say, am I really going to hit X million in sales this year? If so, where, like how confident I am, you know, that these things are going to come through. Did everything just get shifted, you know, another six months out? And if not, I need to start planning for what this year looks like if it's, you know, an $8 million a year, not a $12 million a year. And so what are some of those things that you're advising your companies to look at right now?
3: Well, I think, you know, any business should be looking at their forecast or budget at least once, you know, even if you're mature. Um, smaller should be probably, you know, quarterly is what I usually recommend. But mm-hmm. I think at the end of the day you're trying, well, I guess if your goal is to be profitable, what is your targeted, you know, even on margin? And then you, you basically have to solve backward, just kind of like we sort of talked about it, like, you know, if I have 50% margin or 40% margin, I'm trying to make 10. If my revenue is going to be lower, then my costs have to be lower. So what are my variable components and what are, so if you're opening, let's just say what you talked about, like there's some resets, you were expecting to get new doors, those doors aren't happening. Therefore, you're not going to have the sort of added, you know, corresponding expenses, or, you know, maybe free fills or chargebacks or whatever comes along with that. So those are sort of variable and match the revenue. But what are the fixed components that you might have to be looking at? And I think that kind of goes back to the, the cash burn, you know, and capital discussion on uh, the common thread here of, You know, what are the levers and drivers in your business? So what are the fixed costs? So, you know, if you have an office or rent or, you know, if you're paying for some data or some sort of services that you may not, you know, be able to afford in the next six months, um, you know, nobody wants to cut headcount. That's probably one of the most painful parts of being a business owner is having to make those kinds of decisions. But, um, I mean, that's the reality that people have faced in the last, you know, nine months to a year, which is, you know, capital is drying up. You want to keep operating your business. You have to make those decisions. And um, it's never easy. But I think that's that's really what we're looking at now is I think when there's, there's also this thing when, like, you're growing and you're trying to grow quickly. I think in a small business, the hardest place to hire people is someone to do the things that you can only do early on which is i think growing innovation selling being the face of your company mm-hmm. the place where you can should be looking at spending is basically giving yourself more time to add more value to your business so it's more right. of the back office sort of gna things that are you know administrative tasks that you can pay somebody to do on a fractional basis or 1099 that's mm-hmm. a lot more variable you can turn off pretty quickly um and just gives you more time in the day to lead and grow and push your business in the right direction. Yeah, And I think those are the areas where when things are like kind of on the upswing, you tend to get a little fat. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just like you see in all these large companies, all these tech companies, you know, they all got get fat when times are good. And then they, they cut pretty deep. So you kind of have to do the same exercise uh, in your own business.
1: Yeah. Not, not fun. Um, but no, we want to end on a good note. Um, so tell me that you've seen these types of, you know, tough times before, and that it's really fun on the other side.
3: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, I think the last, uh, call it 10 years have been mostly positive, I think. Um, there's always some like pockets in there that are. But everything is cyclical, right? I think there's a common, I don't know, when I just think about the general economy, there's sort of like this common misconception that like the economy turns on a dime and we're always going to be on this, we're never going to be right in the middle. Like never, nothing's ever right in the sweet spot for very long. You're always Mm -hmm. above it or below it. And you just sort of have to keep riding that wave. Um,
1: Yeah.
3: So. um, That's like life. Yeah, exactly. Like you're never going to be like right in the perfect spot. For longer than a couple seconds so you know I think part of the thing is um you know you definitely want to celebrate your wins but getting too high and too low is something that I've kind of learned to deal with on on my just with myself and my own business um because you know this you sort of get used to that normal and you just keep going and things keep evolving so I don't know if there's obviously this will pass and things will get better eventually and I think it's Um, there's certain leading indicators that are out there that say, you know, things may start to open up soon, but who, who knows, you know? So I think you just got to keep doing what feels right to you, being authentic to yourself and your brand and what you think is right. And, you know, if you have to make some tough decisions to extend the life till you're able to find the next, Mm -hmm. you know, investment or financing or whatever it is, um, you know that's what you got to do, you, yeah. That is what you got to do, and I think you know, yeah. we we as our own business um, are you know trying to work with our companies to do the same. When we see cash balances getting low, we reach out to them and say, Hey, are you watching this? Like, we better let's mm-hmm. talk about it. What do we need to do here? And you know, I think, um, anyway, I think we're here to support any of, any of these businesses or people that are listening. Um, you know, if you're trying to get you know data out of your company you need some infrastructure to make these tough decisions i definitely here to support that um, and yep you know I think it, it will pass
1: <laughs> amazing So you know, hopefully well, we can
3: all you know make it through to the yeah to the other side
1: yes well thanks to people like you and hopefully um, you know, all the resources that are available now, hopefully in terms of just, you know, thinking this stuff through for founders and operators, um, you know, this too shall pass. Um, so, Anthony, yeah. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for breaking it down. And um, I learned a lot. So it was great meeting you and having you on. Thank you.
3: No, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um,
1: yeah. Awesome. Liam, thank you for engineering as always. Um, And all of you, um, I did get that negative review that I posted on LinkedIn, some guy, he had a couple of points. I I can be, you know, I can, (laughs) I can be humble there. Um, But for all of you who responded to him by writing really nice reviews, I just want to say thank you. And, um, obviously the review is a nice ego thing, but mostly it's just so that other founders and operators can hear, um, all of these amazing people that I'm having on. I it doesn't, it doesn't really do all that much for me personally. So thank you, um, on behalf of the other people that get to listen to this cause it comes up in their podcast feed. Um, and I will be back next week with another episode of in the sauce.